the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. On Monday, new government guidance allowed workers to return to their offices for the first time since the COVID pandemic hit in March 2020. It was more of a trickle than a flood, but it does open the door to the ongoing conversation on the future of work. In the first half of the programme, you'll hear from Dr. Sarah Kieran of the Kemi Business School in Limerick, who's been doing extensive research on this very topic with Irish workers. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times and Fergal O'Rourke, managing partner of PwC, about our cherished 12.5% corporation tax rate. Taoiseach Michal Martin seemed to suggest this week that it might no longer be set in stone, as the country comes under pressure to sign up to an OECD-led process that would set a minimum rate of at least 15%. So what's the significance of the Taoiseach's comments? What would a higher rate of tax mean for foreign direct investment in Ireland? And should big and small companies pay different rates? First, we go to the world of work. In the United States, they're talking about the Great Resignation, with 4 million Americans quitting their jobs in July, continuing a trend that became evident earlier in the pandemic. At the Kemi Business School's Work Futures Labs at the University of Limerick, an in-depth study of almost 1,000 people working in Ireland is underway. It deals with various aspects of work, including the push for flexible working arrangements. And I'm delighted to be joined on the line now by Dr. Sarah Kieran, one of the academics leading the research. Sarah, maybe I could just ask you, um, first of all, just uh, tell us a little bit about what the Kemi Business School Work Futures Lab does. Well, the Work Futures Lab was set up last year, but it had been an idea that had been brewing for a couple of years because a number of my colleagues and I had been engaging in research around the future of work from various different angles. I would be looking at the future of work from a leadership and management perspective. I have some colleagues looking at it from a worker and employee relations perspective. And I have other colleagues who are psychologists looking at it from the psychology of work. Um, So as academics, we engage in our own research out of our own interests and our teaching interests, but we also get funding from time to time to do particular projects. But when you get funding, you are curtailed then to the objectives of the funding organisation, which is fine, but sometimes research can be very piecemeal and ad hoc. And we felt that Given there was so much going on in terms of trying to understand what the future of work held for Ireland and and the workers in Ireland, we felt it would make sense to come together as a research group, try and establish links into organisations to um, almost have an insider-led view of the research so that the organisations themselves, rather than us knocking on the door once every two years saying, can we do a survey? Can we interview a few people? That they would be actually at the table with us helping set the agenda. And we also linked into a number of agencies because this is a busy space and there's a lot of effort in Ireland to understand this. So organisations like the Irish Centre for Business Excellence, which is a business network, um, of, of large organisations, the IDA, Enterprise Ireland, Skillnet Ireland, IBEC, and other not-for-profit organisations of which ICBE is one, but also Grow Remote, who are very interested in um, remote working for rural regeneration in particular. So anyway, look, there's about 30 of us sitting around a table now, which is wonderful. 
all very passionate about not trying to predict the future of work, because I don't think that's really possible, but keep pace with the future of work and develop valuable insights to help us understand and hopefully shape the future of work. The organisations involved I believe are very passionate about their people and their employees and really want to make a difference. And and it's coming together quite well. Now, one of the trends we seem to be seeing is um, a dissatisfaction, if you like, uh, between among employees um, for their uh, for, for their current roles. Um, so as we go back to the office here in Ireland, in the US, we have uh, some data from the US Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, showing that 4 million Americans uh, quit their jobs in July 2021. And I think that's a continuation of a, a trend that's been going on for a number of months. And there have been reports recently highlighting that between 20 and 40% of employees in the US and the UK are considering leaving their current jobs. Now, I suppose there can be all sorts of reasons for that, but presumably covid uh, and the change in work patterns that we've seen as a result of COVID, particularly for office workers, presumably um, that's at the heart of it. I'm wondering if, I know you're doing some research in terms of Irish employees, whether you're getting a, a, some similar data out of that. We are. And I actually was quite surprised at the stats coming out of the US and the UK at, at around 40%. Now, um, obviously, a research group is only as good as the data they have. So about six months ago, we set up a live survey called the Creating Work Futures Survey. Um, it's a bit of a mother of a survey, to be honest. It takes about 15 minutes to complete. But despite that, we so far have nearly a thousand responses from people working in Ireland today. So that survey is still live. If anybody is really interested in having their voice around their experiences of work, please just Google Kemi Business School, KBS, Work Futures Lab, and you'll find the link to the survey. I'll also tweet it um, later today. So the survey is live. So the first thing, Kiron, I have to say is that we're still analysing the data. It's still coming in. So these are only preliminary findings. But when I heard those stats coming out of the States, the first thing I did was go in and check our own. And um, we do have a statement in there called My Future Career Lies Outside of My Current Organization. And the, the result was 41% of people either agreed or strongly agreed with that. And when you look at it across different um, types of organisations, sectors, be it multinationals, indigenous, Irish, small business, be it pharmachem, financial, medical devices, health, education, it was pretty much on a par. So it's not sector specific. It's not the type of the organisation. And neither is it dependent on the level you're in the organisation. Graduates are a bit higher. They're up at about 66%. But look, that's kind of normal when, when you're only 22, 23, you don't expect to spend the rest of your life in the organisation. Um, but for the population at large, regardless of the level that you're working at, we're coming out at about the same, which I found surprising. So what do we put that down to? Okay, so we're still digging around. We, we don't understand this fully yet. Um, and what is interesting is that there, people are still have an awful lot of good things to say about working in Ireland today. So if we look at factors like job satisfaction, 
it's quite good. If we look at factors like my organization supports me, my boss supports me, my coworkers support me. If we look at the variety of tasks people have, um, do they feel they can influence decisions? Um, general satisfaction with both their work, their sense of purpose and their company is all quite good. They're mostly agree and strongly agree. You know, yeah, there are cohorts there, 20 to 30 percent who would disagree with those factors. And we will dig around to try and understand what's causing that more. But at an initial glance, there doesn't seem to be much of a problem. But when you dig in deeper and you're kind of at this point, you're trying to find reasons as to what would link to that my future career lives outside the organization. So some of the things in the early findings might be around the pace of work. So people like their jobs and they like their companies. However, they're struggling with the amount of work they have to do, not the type, but the amount. So some of the statistics like I have to work very fast. 74% of people in Ireland today in this survey agreed or strongly agreed with that. I have to work very hard 89%. Um, the amount of work I have to do each day is excessive, 47%. My job is very hectic, 70%. So it almost appears like while they enjoy their work, people are somewhat overwhelmed with work at the moment. Um, and you can dig into that as well then from a psychological and, and a well-being perspective. And unfortunately, the stats there do reflect some issues. So the simple statement, I feel burnt out at work, 38%. Um, I'm too tired to think clearly, which is quite worrying for an employee's welfare, but also for the organisation, at 25%. Um, a great measure of well-being my emotional batteries are dead. That was 31%. I have difficulty concentrating, 24%. So we can see the stats around my future career lies outside the organisation up around the 40s. And maybe, I can't say definitively yet, but maybe these are some of the indicators that may, might shed light on that. So all the talk as well around COVID is the future of flexible working Obviously, the government has said that people can go back to the offices from this week. Now, I know a lot of employers aren't bringing uh, huge numbers back to the office. They're not insisting on people going back in huge numbers just yet. Uh, but I guess that'll happen over time. Um, but it's interesting from your study, from the early findings, you're showing that 15% of the respondents feel that they won't get a, a blended working solution. And 31% say it's only a maybe at this stage. So that's nearly half of the respondents, which is quite interesting. It is. It's quite worrying because even though the government are sending a very strong signal to organisations with the right to request flexible working and socially uh, in the media and in, in social narrative, there's very, very strong signals that people feel a hybrid work or a blended way of working really is the future for society in terms of how busy life can be these days and, and the value of the quality of life people have um, that they have been reflecting on during lockdown. Um, but we asked people, only the people who felt that because of the nature of their job, they could work from home. So there's loads of essential jobs out there like retail, healthcare, education, where you can't work from home. But where you can, we asked them, 
you know, do you think you're going to get blended when you get back into the office? And it's quite high, 31% doubtful and 15% feeling that they had no chance. Now, there's still about 40% of people that actually said, well, I was already working blended. You know, my organisation already promoted flexible working, which is wonderful. But, you know, it's those ones that are sticking fast and holding fast to the traditional view that work is bounded by time and place. And really, we've got to change that as a society. We have got to take action on it, I believe. We have to challenge organisations. We have to query them. We have to ask them why. If office workers could work from home entirely during lockdown, why can they not work in a hybrid way uh, into the future. Um, and, and I believe organisations have to be seriously challenged on this. Well, it's interesting because I know you're working with a number of organisations in this uh, research, uh, big Irish companies and some very significant, well-known multinationals as well. So are you asking those questions of those companies? Well, you see, it's, it's interesting. The ones that are at the table doing this research are the ones that are already doing it. OK, so we didn't just ask any organisation or any brand to, to, to join the Work Futures Lab. We very carefully handpicked people and individuals that we knew really were committed to shaping the future of work for the better of all. So they're the ones at the table. I don't believe that's where the problem lies. Um, the problem is with the ones that aren't interested in joining the Work Futures Lab, probably because our view of the world of work might be a little bit too challenging for them to embrace. And this whole talk of a great resignation, is it down to terms and conditions as well? You know, have they diminished over the years and this idea of a job for life with a good pension at the end of it is, is really gone, uh, particularly in places like America uh, and Britain? Yeah, wow, I could spend two hours trying to answer that question, Kieran. It's very multifaceted. I mean, the first point we have to make is, you know, aren't you lucky to be able to say my future career lies outside of this organisation? Because it implies two things. You have a job and you have a choice to leave. Um, you know, so many people in our society, first of all, they're not getting jobs, they're not getting access to jobs, um, they're not getting quality jobs, they're on zero hour contracts, casual labour contracts. Um, so people who engage in the great resignation are the privileged, they have choices. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge that. Um, it's also important to acknowledge that it's an indicator that they want to leave. Um, they're not rushing out the door. We don't have any evidence that they're actually is a great resignation. And I'm not sure the detail of the stats coming out of the UK and US. Um, I think it's more a desire. Um, so it might be just a red flag to organisations at this point that if they don't start actually challenging their own thinking. And that's really the thinking at management, leadership and shareholder level, even in small businesses. Um, we have to challenge our thinking about what work looks like, focus on the people, the employee experience and the outcomes of the business, because that's what matters. OK, I'm going to this is your crystal ball moment. Look out five years um, and let's confine it to Ireland and confine it to desk based workers. What's the future of work going to look like for them? I think that there will be many opportunities to engage in hybrid working. I think the government are behind the view. I think organisations like Row Remote are doing wonderful jobs for rural generation 
asking organisations to advertise a job, not a job in a place. So I think there is a huge social and policy push around this. But do I believe everyone will be able to stand up in the office and say, I would like flexible working? And that could be home working, remote working, hybrid working, or it could be flexi time, term time. I think that many organisations will try to hold tight to that command and control traditional view of what work looks like. Um, And maybe the best we can hope for is that over time they die off um, in in the nicest possible way and that new generations, younger generations will vote with their feet. I think employer brands of the future will absolutely be able to differentiate themselves on the kinds of choices they give their employees. And look, we already have the evidence. We've been working remotely for up to 10, 15 years now in some organisations. We already have the evidence that employees are typically more motivated, more engaged. Um, I'm not saying that we should all stay at home forever either. Absolutely, there's value in the social dynamics of work, in problem solving around a table, in building networks and social capital. There's huge value in all of that. I'm not for a moment suggesting that we can and should all work from home forever. But what we do need to create are organisations where asking to work from home is not seen as not being interested or committed. Um, we don't want an organisation where all the men in the off- are in the office and all the women are at home. That will set gender diversity back 30 years. Um, what we want is equal access, diversity and inclusion. And I really do believe future generations will vote with their feet. Yeah, sure. And I should ask you, what's the policy on working from home at the Kenny, Kenny Business School? Well, I'll let you into a little secret, Kiran. I was in industry for 15 years and the reason I'm an academic is because academics have had that freedom to work whenever, wherever they've wanted since since time began. Um, but uh, yeah, I can't speak for the higher education in general, but certainly UL have been working very hard on a homework policy. For example, the department coordinator in my own department, Work and Employment, is now working from home pretty much full time. She just comes in on a needs basis. Um, so it's great to see universities like UL, you know, engaging in these kind of hybrid work. And it's it's not easy. It's complicated. It's hard to figure this out because you have to develop a policy at an organisational level, but it's very hard to policy make for uncertainty. Policies are usually for the kind of 80%, the standard rule. We're, we're, you could call it a great ex- uh, resignation. You could also call this a great experiment. This is a real social experiment in shifting the boundaries of work. But it's good to see that UL have developed their remote working policy and and at at a, a head of department or or a faculty level um we're experimenting with it we're we're trying it out and um that's what organizations need to do but look will it be messy for a while Absolutely. And, you know, when I was trying to get people into the Work Futures Lab, that's the one thing I promised them. I said, this is going to be really, really messy, messy work um, um, because it's uncertainty. And, and that's where the best research should be in the uncertain places, I believe. OK, well, we wish you well with that. And, and perhaps when your research is fully formed, as it were, we might get you back to go through uh, some of the results and some of the findings from that. Dr. Sarah Kieran of the Kemi Business School Work Futures Lab at University of Limerick, thank you for joining us. 
We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times and Fergal O'Rourke of PwC about the apparent shift in tone by the government on our 12.5% corporate tax rate. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, for years, it's been a case of no, nay, never when it comes to our 12.5% corporate tax rate from all sides of the Irish political divide. You might recall that Ireland recently declined to sign a draft proposal from the OECD for a minimum global rate of at least 15%. But this week on a visit to New York for the UN General Assembly, Taoiseach Michal Martin said he could not guarantee US companies that the 12.5% Irish rate would remain. That's a significant shift in the mood music from the government. Separately, Tonisha Lee of Radker revealed that a dual rate could apply, with the 12.5% rate being kept for companies with annual turnover below €750 million. Euro. To help make sense of these remarks, I'm joined on the line by Cliff Taylor, who's been writing extensively about this topic for the Irish Times, and PwC Managing Partner Fergal Rook, someone who's very well plugged into this long-running debate. Cliff Taylor, I might start with you. Uh, no say never has uh, been the mantra from Irish politicians for many years now in terms of our cherished 12.5% tax rate, but that seemed to soften uh, this week when Michal Martin, uh, during a trip to the United States, said that he couldn't guarantee US companies that the 12.5% corporate tax rate that's been in place here now for quite some time would continue to be in place going forward. Uh, what should we read into that? Yeah, I think there's no doubt, Kieran, that uh, the sands are shifting and that the way is being prepared for, for a possible change. Uh, whether that change will happen or not, it's going to depend on, on, on a lot of things over the next couple of months. So I think, I suppose really what uh, Michal Martin was saying was making explicit what was already implicit in what uh, Pascal Donoghue has been saying for the last couple of months. Uh, the finance minister has been saying, look, we want to sign up to a deal, uh, but we just have a few problems with the details. And I, and I guess it's clear that if we do sign up to a deal, that it is going to involve uh, changing the 12.5% rate. Nonetheless, I think it's, you know, it is significant that um, the Taoiseach, you know, said that explicitly in Washington. Uh, I, I think it does take it to it does take it to another level, uh, but I still think you know we're going to be waiting for another three, four, five weeks to try and get some clarity on how this is now going to play out. And uh, we'll be looking for kind of important OECD talks that are going to take place in early October and a ministerial meeting later that month, and also crucially how Joe Biden's proposals on tax, which are kind of running in parallel with the OECD process, progress in Washington. So I think an awful lot to play for over the next few months, the way being prepared for a possible change, but still unclear exactly how the ground will lie and how this will play out. What's your reading of it, uh, Fergal O'Rourke? I mean, Leo Varadkar joined the debate as well with some comments about how this uh, corporation tax regime in the future might work. So it could be for companies, I think he said, with a turnover uh, up to 750 million euro, you could have the existing 12.5% rate. And for everyone else, it'll be 15%. Is that your understanding of where does the direction of travel on this? Yeah, I, I think it was Benjamin Franklin that said the only certain things in life were death and taxes. Uh, he'd, he'd be wrong if he were around today, because I think, as Cliff outlined there, the debate is still up for grabs. I actually think what Leo Varadkar talked about yesterday 
could be a perfect landing for Ireland if it came off. And by that, I mean he's highlighted the fact that there's a small number of companies that this will affect, the really large players, predominantly US multinationals. And there's one scenario, Kieran, that could happen where Ireland's allowed to keep the 12.5% rate. But for that class of companies uh, that would be affected by the OECD, you would do an alternative calculation by different rules with a different rate, probably 15%. And those companies would pay the higher of the two. In other words, do an Irish calculation at 12.5 or do this different OECD calculation at 15. But can you imagine if Pascal Donoghue came home from the last OECD debate with a piece of paper in his hand saying, I have secured the 12.5% rate for domestic Ireland and it's only those larger companies uh, who will be paying a little bit more. I have a progressive rate of corporation tax. So I think Leo Varadkar perhaps was tipping his hat towards what could be a dream scenario for Ireland of we have our cake and we eat it. We collect a little bit more tax from multinationals and we still hold on to the 12.5% rate for broad swathes of the economy. Why would we want to hold on to the 12.5% rate for broad swathes of the economy? I mean, the 12.5% rate was always designed for foreign direct investment, wasn't it? Well, it was and it wasn't. But but you're right, there, There's a the political calculus then would be uh, does um, the minister say, well, I, I'll take this opportunity to level up, if I can use a Boris Johnson phrase, and, and bring it to 15 for everybody? Or, and, and again, with an eye to the, the, political, uh, the political debate, does he leave it at 12 and a half for the domestic economy? Because it's interesting, Pierce Doherty came out yesterday supporting 12 and a half and saying it would be a failure of the Irish government if they didn't manage to hold on to it. So, uh, he, he, the minister has to watch his own uh, internal political calculus here. And if Sinn Féin, uh, he's hardly going to be outflanked by Sinn Féin on the capitalist side of the debate. But if you've got Sinn Féin saying that, Labour coming out saying, well, they, they saw 15 as a better rate. For the first time, Kieran, in a quarter of a century, the rate of tax, of corporation tax in Ireland could be a matter for political discourse and political debate to exactly the question you asked. Should it be 15 for all? or 12.5 for some and 15 for the rest. That's a, that could well be a valid political debate we haven't had in 25 years. And we need to pay for COVID, don't we? Whatever, whatever way you slice it and dice it. And isn't the reality that SMEs don't really pay much by way of tax anyway because they don't make much by way of profits? So it's only going to be reasonably substantial companies that are going to be affected. Yeah, that's an interesting... We collected roughly 12 billion in corporation tax last year. Uh, the top 10 companies accounted for half of that. And they're likely, knowing some of them, all to be affected by these new OECD rules. I, I reckon somewhere between 60 and 70% of, of our current tax base will be caught by these new OECD rules. Straight away, that's an increase in tax for us. So you could argue either way, Kieran. You could say, you know what, the, we're going to have... You know, we talked earlier in the year about the OECD uh, proposals potentially costing us two billion. This is the other side of those OECD proposals where we could gain potentially anywhere between one and two billion. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, COVID has ushered in an era of bigger government again. Bigger government has to be paid for through increased taxes. 
increased taxes have to come from all sectors. You're right. Maybe the minister will decide, you know what, I'll take the opportunity to level up and put everybody in 15. But I thought Sinn Féin's uh, comments yesterday of supporting 12 and a half and it being a failure if the minister didn't deliver 12 and a half. Is that real economic belief or is that a bit of uh, politics? Cliff, earlier this year, the OECD came up with a draft uh, plan which kind of set the minimum rate at at least 15%. But Ireland didn't sign up to it. There were 139 countries, I think, debating this proposal. And we were one of, was it five that didn't sign up for it? Nine originally, I think. We were in there with some curious characters, yeah. So why didn't we sign up for it um, if this is the direction of travel anyway? Yeah, I think there was nine originally. I think three or four of them have have come on board since. So our friends, our group of friends is shrinking in the corner of the playground. Um, Estonia and Hungary are still hanging in, uh, still haven't signed up. They're the only two other European countries. How how uh, how strong they would be in holding that position, it's hard to tell. I mean, I think we didn't sign up because the deal didn't offer enough certainty uh, in terms of what's going to happen in future. And there's two bits to that. One is kind of a lot of the details that still have to be worked out. And there are some things that are important there to us, like how research and development is, is dealt with, for example, uh, and how these new rules for reallocating where companies pay tax work, which is the bit of the deal that's going to uh, cost us. I think the other thing, a lot of it comes down to the two words, the at least words. Um, so in other words, Pascal Dunham, who didn't want to sign up to a commitment that we would set a rate of at least 15%, because that could be 15, it could be 17, it could be 19, it could be whatever you're having yourself. And I think that compromise in turn reflected uh, kind of a diversity of views around the OECD table. So you've a lot of countries that I'd be perfectly happy with 15 and countries like France and some of our European partners who are pushing for something a good deal higher. So I think, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a cost to doing that in terms of reputation, uh, but one that would probably be fairly quickly forgotten about if, if we do come on board late in the day. Uh, so I think it, it was a negotiating position. He probably had the choice of signing up with reservations or staying outside, and he made the call of staying outside I guess to try and squeeze a few um, concessions or, 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 or things that suit Ireland out of the negotiations. And every every country is now trying the same thing in the talks that are going on. There are carve-outs, as they're called, being negotiated for this, that and the other, and everyone's fighting their own corner. So it's just going to remain to be seen now how successful that tactic is. Can we actually shape this in a way that lets us have some control or is the bus now moving at such a speed that we're just going to have to jump on at some stage and, you know, take what we're given, so to speak? Fergal, one of the reasons why we've uh, held on to this 12.5% rate and why we've had this no-say-never mantra around it is because we wanted to protect foreign um, direct investment and we had a tax advantage over other countries, particularly the big ones. Now, if that tax advantage goes, how likely is it, in your opinion, that multinationals will quit Ireland. I mean, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Microsofts, they could just as easily go to France or Germany or the UK, couldn't they? Uh, Yes, in theory, but I suppose there was never any arithmetic magic to 12 and a half. When it was brought in back in 96, 97, uh, I remember talking to the officials and the politicians at the time, 10 was too low, 15 was too high, 13 was unlucky, 12 and a half was landed on as, well, it's great, it's an eighth, it's a convenient rate. So it's not about the rate these days. Like early on, it was about the rate. Since then, though, it's been about, it's a symbol for the fact that 
Ireland does what it says it'll do. It's not going to change the rate. It's predictable. It's stable. And the rate could have been 11 or 9. It's the fact that it never moved. So there's two aspects to your question, Kieran. One is, does the change in a rate from 12 and a half, let's say it happens to 15, cause a difficulty? No. Why? Because it still will be less than the US rate, will be less than the German rate, less than the French rate. And Ireland will still be at the competitive end at, of the tax rates. So I've no fear because of the rate moving to 15. The, the unknowable is, is Ireland viewed differently now that it has changed its rate? Is Ireland now just another country? And I suppose the political analogy might be, you know, Fianna Fáil used to say, no, nay, never to coalitions. They just didn't do coalitions. And then they did. And once they did, they became another party. If, if Ireland now moves the rate after a quarter of a century, are we just another country who might move the rate again? That's the, that's the worry. So is there any danger that multinationals might uh, view Ireland differently or might uh, quit the country? I don't believe so. And, uh, you know, I, I deal with a lot of them on a regular basis, have done so for the last 30 years. Um, the, the biggest thing going for Ireland right now is Ireland works. And by that I mean roughly two-thirds of new projects that come into Ireland are from existing companies here already. And I know when I visit a lot of these companies' headquarters in the U.S., they will say to you their experience of Ireland is fantastic, that Ireland is pro-US, pro-business. It's an easy place to do business in or with. So that, you know, if you look at and the press coverage around Intel potentially um, putting their foundry operations here, that is a direct consequence of the experience they've had in Leakslip over the last 30 years. And they've, you know, they've been very public about how well Ireland has worked. That's what really works for us now. So do I foresee this as diminishing Ireland's uh, um, attractiveness as inward location? Fractionally, but not in any substance. Had this happened 20 years ago, Kieran, yeah, I would have been more worried. But we've, we've got such a track record over the last 20 years of working with these multinationals. I, I'm really not that concerned. Cliff, where are we at with the, the digital sales tax? That's another area of concern for us as well, isn't it? And various countries have kind of gone off and done their own thing. Um, France, Spain, uh, the UK, etc. And there is this issue around where sales are generated and, and where sales are actually booked. And a lot of them booked in Ireland, let's say but generated in other countries and those countries feel they should get a slice of that of that revenue. Where is that whole debate at? Yeah, well, that's part, there's two, two parts to the OECD deal or the draft agreement uh, that was signed by most of the countries. The one, one bit, pillar two, as it's called, concerns the minimum tax rate, the bit we've been discussing. But pillar one is, the, is just that, it's the digital sales tax. It's where it's suggesting a big change in the arrangements for where companies pay tax. So you're right, the France's, the Germany's, the UK's, the Italy's are saying, look, uh, we want a bit of slice of the pie here. There are international headquarters based in Ireland, but they're selling around Europe. In a digital world, it's not realistic to say that all the resulting revenue should be going to Ireland or indeed to the US, so we want some of that money as well. So that would be part of the, of, of the, of the agreement as currently structured. And I think one of the things that Ireland would be pushing for and that a lot of countries, the US in particular, would be pushing for was that as part of this, that all the unilateral measures that you referred to there would, would be withdrawn and there would just be one agreement on how this would work internationally. So this is the bit that, that we know will, will cost us revenue. Um, the Department of Finance has kind of guesstimated that it will be between 800 million and 2 billion a year. 
it's going to come down to technicalities of the rules and how companies react to those rules. Uh, but this is the bit that uh, that is going to cost us. I, I do think it's the, the second part of the deal that is going to be uh, the key factor for Ireland in the long term. I think we can live with the with the lower tax tax revenue of two billion from the from the digital sales levy. But it's the question of what the influence will be of, of the new regime on the ten or twelve big uh, boardrooms of U.S. companies, which you know the decisions of which are really relevant from an Irish point of view, and that that's going to put pressure on us to up our game in other areas. You know, areas like that maybe we've been a bit lax on in the last few years, like yeah, promoting research and innovation, for example. We're still lagging a bit behind in that. And the old question of funding third level and, and further education. Uh, this is something, you know, the Irish political system has kicked to touch for many years, but uh, um, finding a way to persuade companies that we can continue to um, provide them with top-class graduates and top-class university research and researchers it's going to be really central to, to the future. You know, it is encouraging companies like Stripe have, you know, are, are locating here. And that is a testament, I guess, to the fact they feel, you know, the, the right kind of people are available here. But the game is really being upped in that area. And, and that's, if we can't attract people on tax, if we can't use tax as a bigger tool to attract companies, the other factors are going to become more and more important. Yeah, the fact that it has two Irish founders as well, I think also helps in the case of uh, Stripe. But I, I take your point. Uh, Fergal, just just on that that issue that Cliff raises there, we're going to have to be a bit nimbler and um, look at other ways to uh, other means to attract uh, foreign multinationals. I mean, what did they tell you in terms of what Ireland could do better? Or in your opinion, what could Ireland do better to serve the multinational community and to continue this flow of foreign direct investment? Um, nothing that you'd be surprised at. Um, you know, housing does come up from time to time if they're moving key people over. Um, but I, I would say education, making sure we keep at the forefront of education is the key area. Uh, having that availability of skilled graduates coming out. I think the fact that Ireland is welcome, uh, open hearted country for EU citizens to come in here, that has been a huge boon to us. So if you talk to any of the major multinationals here, yes, they employ a huge amount of Irish people, but they also apply a lot of foreign people who've come here to work in those companies. So I think continuing to have a progressive welcoming society that welcomes in uh, other EU citizens to help us meet the skills gap where we have them, continuing to focus on, on, on developing good 21st century savvy graduates and the perennial issue of of rental and housing, in, particularly in Dublin. And that's why, you know, if we go off on a bit of a tangent, that Intel Foundry proposal that you saw in the paper, that would be fantastic for regional development. There still is a, a bias towards Dublin and the East Coast in, in uh, an, an, a natural bias uh, because other companies want to come where the hub is. But we need to broaden that region development even further. And the idea have done a good job, but there's more that can be done. Uh, Fergal, how significant is this meeting in October? What are you expecting to come out of it? I think there'll be an awful lot of work done between now and then. Uh, I know the Department of Finance are heavily involved in discussions with the OECD. You know, I'd be amazed. Uh, we're, we're fortunate with Pascal Donoghue being the president of the Eurogroup. Uh, you know, he has unfettered access to the German finance minister, to Janet, Janet, Yellen, Janet Yellen and others. I would say he's earning his keep at the moment in those one-to-ones in a series of bilaterals. I think by the time October comes, there will still be a bit to be ironed out, but we'll have a much clearer picture of the way it's going to, to, to finish up. The key player of this is Pascal Santaman, the OECD tax head. 
he is trying to keep everybody on board. And you raised earlier the fact that Ireland were one of only eight or nine countries that didn't sign up at the outset. There's a number of countries that have emerged in the interim who kind of are now have signed up with reservations and are now beginning to grumble a bit more. He's got to keep everybody on board. The US is the big 800 pound gorilla here. The US will determine the success or failure of these OECD talks. So to go back to where we started, you know, was the minister and the government right to, t- to stay out of not signing up? I would argue yes, because there was so much uncertainty, as Cliff said, the main one being not less than 15%. But there's so much uncertainty and technical details still out there. I think Pascal Dunne, who's right to sit back and let's see how it plays out. But the next two, three weeks are going to be critical. All right, Fergal, and with the budget coming up on October 12th, it'd be remiss of me not to ask you what you're expecting from it. What are you telling your clients? Not much. And, you know, I'm surprised to hear certain politicians calling for tax cuts. Um, We've got to pay for the last 18 months and we've got to put the economy back in a sound footing. And personally speaking, do I need a tax cut? I don't. But I think people who are at the, the squeeze middle, those people who are you move, are in between the, the standard rate and, and the top rate, there needs to be some relief given there. But the idea that we could sort of bring in tax cuts generally, I just don't think that's feasible. So I think if the minister can hold the line on taxes, not increase taxes, not decrease taxes, I think that would be positive. I think it would be a positive signal. And I think the economy is turning around. You see it in the corporation tax receipts. You see it in the income tax receipts. You see it in, in, in the numbers. So I, I think if you know, the minister, I would say to the minister, do no harm. If he, can, if he can hold taxes, not increase them, I think that gives us a bit of a, a time and space to start uh, trading our way out of this. Yeah, but a lot of pressure on to increase uh, welfare rates and you know, a lot of talk of fuel poverty with gas prices rising so yeah. sharply. You know, how, do we, uh, how do we manage that while not increasing taxes? I think it, it, it's difficult. I think you're right. He, there, there are certain areas of society you really will have to look after. There's also the money that we need to spend on housing and that. But I, 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 the economy is picking up. It's a, you know, the, the, the maths, I, I suppose the point I'd be making, Kieran, is I don't see how tax cuts figure in that equation. If he can manage to hold taxes, I think that will be a success. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, an equation that has tax cuts and welfare increases and heavy spend in the areas of health and housing, I just don't see how you balance that. I don't even see how you balance it in the, the short term, let alone the long term. Yeah, OK, well, there's no doubt that October is going to be a busy month for Pascal Dunhu between the budget and that OECD meeting. Uh, let's see how they both play out. Uh, Fergal O'Rourke and Cliff Taylor, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Kieran. OK, that's it for this week from Inside Business. Thanks again to Fergal O'Rourke, Cliff Taylor and Dr Sarah Kieran. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY. The show was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay safe.